Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. This week, lawmakers are back in Tallahassee for a special session. Up for discussion, among other bills, are measures to provide relief for ranchers affected by Hurricane Idalia and help homeowners struggling with high insurance premiums. Together with hurricanes, the looming threat of climate change, and our booming population, the homeowners' insurance crisis is a perfect storm of challenges for Florida. But one southwest Florida community thinks it might have some of the answers. Today we'll sit down with Babcock Ranch developer Sid Kitson and talk about planning a resilient town and building for an uncertain future. We'll also explore what this community on the fringes of a vast tract of undeveloped land means for the environment. But first, hop on a golf cart with me and my colleague Steve Newborn and take a look around Babcock Ranch. Alright, I'm on the back seat, dude. Okay. <laughs> my name is Lisa Hall and I am a communications and uh, community relations advisor for Kitson and Partners in Babcock Ranch. Today we're going to take a look at some of the sustainability features of Babcock Ranch and why we were able to stand up to Hurricane Ian. On the surface, Babcock Ranch doesn't look too different from many planned communities in Florida. Electric golf carts whizzing by immaculate front yards and tidy homes, People strolling along the sidewalks, pine trees and palms, and in the background the rumble of construction as new homes are built. But some of what makes this place different is hidden. Power lines are buried beneath roads, and the development is designed around a series of lakes and ponds built to handle flooding. Hurricane Ian was the first real test. In addition to all the lakes and, and all them being interconnected so you can keep it level throughout in case you do have more rain in one area, and there's little uh, swales between houses as well, and so they actually sent an advisory before the storm to the residents and saying, hey, if the water in that lake behind your house looks like it's getting pretty high, that's okay. It's designed to be that way. If you have water coming up and it's going between your house, that's okay. It's designed to be that way because actually our streets then provide even more capacity. They're part of that last-ditch effort to prevent flooding is you've got those streets that are designed to hold that water as well. During Hurricane Ian, the lights, water and internet stayed on thanks to hardened lines bringing power into Babcock Ranch. And during the day, the power to those homes is generated from a vast solar array beyond the northern end of the development. From an observation tower, a sea of solar panels stretches into the distance. With the full 150 megawatts that we have now of the two different plants, it's close to 800 acres. It really looks like you're looking out over the ocean. And it's amazing, you can kind of see a little bit of the heat rising, but you know they're not hot to the touch. Photovoltaic is very safe for the wildlife, and you see birds sitting on them all the time. All of these features helped Babcock Ranch to ride out Hurricane Ian, one of the most destructive storms to ever hit Florida, relatively unscathed even as the storm carved a path of devastation through southwest Florida. And since the storm, there's been keen interest in this development, from people who want to live here, and community leaders in other towns and cities who want to emulate what Babcock Ranch got right. Planning and building this community has been a long process. Developer Sid Kitson's company paid $700 million for the 91,000-acre property from the Babcock family back in 2005, and then sold 74,000 acres back to the state of Florida, and what was the state's biggest ever conservation land purchase. Back at Founders Square, the heart of Babcock Ranch, I sat down with Kitson to talk about how it was built. We are sitting in the conference room 
at the heart of things, right right here in the middle of Babcock Ranch, right? Well, actually what's interesting is we're at Founders Square, which is the first of three downtowns at Babcock Ranch. And each one has kind of a different feel to it, but uh, Founders Square is the center, if you will, of what we call West Town. Then we're gonna have Midtown, which is actually all under construction right now, and then East Town. So eventually there'll be uh, over 20,000 homes and 6 million square feet here, and we'll have 55 to 60,000 people living here too. So this is the beginning. So you're like about a quarter of the way into it so far? Yeah, we've actually sold about 10,000 lots to builders, so we're about halfway on in terms of land sales to builders. Home sales, will, by the end of this year, we'll have uh, over 4,000 dwelling units. We'll have close to 10,000 people uh, living here. So yeah, you're about right. We're about a quarter of the way through. And I imagine interest would have picked up quite a lot in the last couple of years. Significantly. Uh, we, you know, we started out strong too, though. It was sort of a, a very steady growth. And then, of course, uh, when COVID hit, like everybody, we were surprised at the surge that we had. But then after Hurricane Ian, we had even a greater surge when Babcock fared as well as it did during a very, very difficult time, very violent storm. A lot of people wanted to live in Florida but wanted to be safe. And Babcock Ranch has proven that it has that kind of resiliency. I want to ask more about that, but walk us back, if you could. This deal with the family that owned the ranch was struck way back in 2005. So that's 18 years ago, a pretty long process. I mean, developments take a while, but that seems like kind of out of the ordinary when it comes to a development community. What got you interested in this tract of land in the first place? You're right. This is a very complex process and deal that was put together with the family. And this started, all the, like you said, all the way back in 2005. We actually closed in 2006. The family was great because when they put Babcock Ranch out on the market, originally the state wanted to buy it, but they couldn't because the family was selling stock and not the asset. And uh, the state was not able to do that. So that ended their ability to, to purchase it. But the family still cared about stewardship. And we were probably the lowest bid to buy the property. But we were the ones that said we really want to uh, really focus on not only preserving the land, but on sustainability. So just put it in perspective, we purchased 91,000 acres. That's 143 square miles. And then we sold 73,000 acres to the state of Florida, and that is the largest land purchase in the history of the state, and still is today. We ended up with 18,000 acres. And out of the 18,000 acres, we're preserving half of that. So at the end of the day, 90% of the original ranch is in preservation forever. And when I talk to people from the Babcock family, there were 43 heirs, put that in perspective. That's a lot of people in a that's, that's a lot of people. But at the end of the day, we were able to accomplish our goals. And then as we started to work through the process, we had one year to put all this together, by the way, to sell that land to the state, to get the entitlements, to do the things we needed to do. That all normally would take at least minimum five plus years to do under normal circumstances. So there were a lot of people who wanted to get it done, both in the public and the private sector. A lot of people who were against it, but were able to persevere, probably too because during this process early on, we built a coalition of environmentalists. The environmental groups all came together to support the preservation part of what we were doing. And that was, a, that was a big help. And then we brought all the neighbors and people together in a charrette 
that lasted about a week where everyone got to talk about the things that they wanted to do, what was important to them. And then we implemented those, those things. And I think when people come here today, they, what's really fun to see is families who participated early on in those charrettes, they'll come here to Babcock and they'll point to something and go, you know, that was my idea, <laughs> which is always fun to hear because we'd got some great ideas, not only from the people who participated in the charrette, but also from those people, or na the neighbors who were against us. They made us better. I think, you know, there's always this feeling like, oh my gosh, they're against us, so that's bad. Well, in my view, when somebody uh, is concerned about something, there's usually a good reason. And so we listened, and I think we're better because of that. So, flash forward to Hurricane Ian. I understand you wrote out the storm in your home, which you can see from here, actually. It's sort yep. of prime property at the head of the lake there. What was that like? One of the most incredible experiences I think I've ever been through, and I've been through a lot of hurricanes in, in Florida, but remember we had promised to everyone who moved into Babcock Ranch that they could shelter in place. One of our core initiatives was resiliency. And so we did a lot of things here at Babcock Ranch to make sure it was resilient, not only from a wind perspective, but from a rain perspective. And we spent a lot of time and effort doing that. It was an investment that a lot of people questioned. Well, why are you spending this kind of money to do the things that you're doing? Well, I can tell you on September 27th, when Hurricane Ian started to approach, if you recall, it was supposed to go up to the Panhandle. Mm -hmm. And then it started to hit Cuba as a Category 1, cross Cuba, exploded, literally, into a strong Category 4. Then all of a sudden, it was headed to the Big Bend. And then it was headed to Tampa. And then, sure enough, it took that right-hand turn and right into Fort Myers and Fort Myers Beach. I just remember sitting in my home, listening to the weather person on the TV saying, well, it's heading right for Babcock Ranch. All of a sudden, that feeling like, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. We're about to be tested. A strong Category 4 hurricane about to hit our community. All the work we've done, all the planning, everything that you think that you've done right, you don't really know until you're tested. So when this thing hit us, we had sustained winds of 100 miles an hour, gusts up to 150 miles an hour. In, and I was in my house, it lasted at least eight hours. Felt like a freight train running through my house for that period of time. And all I kept thinking about are my neighbors. You know, what's gonna happen? What is this place gonna look like? I was up all night through September 28th, just literally all night waiting for this thing to pass through. And it was so slow. You could walk faster and this thing was moving. And so finally, the next morning, I woke up. Actually, I didn't wake up, I was still up. <laughs> as soon as I saw the light hit, I jumped in my truck and, and just started driving. I spent four or five hours driving around Babcock Ranch. And it was absolutely shocking to see minimal damage. Everybody was outside. It was literally, everybody was walking outside, just looking around, almost in stunned silence, just trying to take it all in. When all around us, there was this destruction and people had lost their lives, and there was so much devastation surrounding us. And it was at that point everybody realized that all the work, all the planning had worked, but now it was time to give back. And this, this community came together and really did some wonderful things. Uh, we have a shelter here that people uh, were giving, whether it be food or fresh clothes, 
They brought in uh, the linemen that were working on uh, the electrical systems. They were having them come in their homes and providing meals and, and showers. And I think if you talk to people who live at Babcock Ranch, I think the thing that they'll say that surprised them the most was that they never lost power and the water never turned off. So those utilities were you know, maintained throughout that entire experience. And I can tell you, having been through a few of these, it's quite bizarre to actually watch it happening because normally you don't have power, but to literally see it real time all over the top, it was quite an experience. Yeah, I mean, the aftermath of storms is usually the most miserable time, right? You're sitting waiting for power to come back on. It's, there's no AC unless you've got a generator if you're lucky. It's hard to get a hot meal, so hot true. shower. So true. It's, and it's usually hot. Because yeah. everything kind of clears out and it just gets the steamy hot. And you're right, everyone here had their air conditioning and everything was working fine. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Babcock Ranch developer Sid Kitson about how this planned community on the edge of a vast conservation estate in southwest Florida withstood Hurricane Ian and what other cities and towns could learn from the development. When we come back, just how affordable is resilient design and what are the limits of sustainable development in the face of Florida's insatiable hunger for housing? Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. After Hurricane Ian tore through southwest Florida last year, attention turned to Babcock Ranch, a community designed for resilience. Let's get back to my conversation with developer Sid Kitson, who I sat down with after touring Babcock Ranch to see some of the development's features like flood resilience and solar power. So there's a few things I understand that work in your favor in terms of resilience. You've got your own solar array. You have a system of lakes and a water management system that allows you to stay above the water in a big rainfall event. This place is built pretty high above sea level too. I read like 30 feet, is that right? That's right. So talk me through how that kind of helps in terms of resilience. It's planning from the beginning. It's getting it right from the beginning. You're right, we're 30 feet above sea level. That was very purposeful, that wasn't an accident. We did not want to be in a place where the storm surge would have an impact. Then we went back and looked at maps from the 1940s to find the natural flowways. And that was really important. We had these and then found those natural flowways and said we're not gonna build there because that's where the water's gonna go. You know, we learned a long time ago, and we should all learn. You can't mess with Mother Nature because she's going to win every single time. So if you go through Babcock, you'll see these flowways that come through. They're massive, and that's where the water goes. In addition to that, we put a lake system together. That has, it's a smart stormwater management system where it can lower the lakes if it anticipates more rain. And in the event of a catastrophic event, this system is actually designed where if the lakes do overflow, which oh, I, I don't know how that'd be possible, but if they did overflow, they actually goes into the roads and then works its way down into the system itself. So it, it still protects the homes. So we, we really had sort of redundancy in that. We also have native plant materials throughout Babcock Ranch. And why is that important? Well, because they do great in wet weather, they do great in dry weather, and they do great in the wind. So we require that. All the landscaping you see here are native plants. And then we buried all of our utilities from electric to, uh, and of course, of the water. But then we own the water and wastewater plant, and we hardened that also. So that during a storm, we didn't have to worry about the plant failing. And, you know, people think that, you know, you had power because of the solar, but it really wasn't the solar that kept us online. 
What we did is we spent eight years working with Florida Power and Light to harden the system into Babcock Ranch, into our substation. And so if you look at Babcock right now and you look at the poles and everything coming in, we can draw power from all over the state safely. And so these poles actually were able to bring that energy to our substation and then our substation underground. We still, by the way, had that four hours of solar storage, battery storage, in place if we had needed it. They didn't use it because they didn't need it, but it was there just in case. So when you started this development, obviously there was quite a lot that you needed to do to mitigate the environmental impact of a, a big housing development on what was once a, a fairly extensive ranch with a lot of unspoiled land. But was your goal from the get-go, were you thinking about storms or were you more thinking about how do we minimise the environmental impact of this? What What was forefront in your mind? Was it resilience or was it environmental? Both. Absolutely both. If you look at our initiatives back in 2005, and I told, it was, it was really interesting, uh, when we made the announcement and we had a number of reporters there, I said we're going to create the most sustainable new town that's ever been developed. This is back in 2005. And one of the reporters raises his hand and he says, Mr. Kitson, what does that mean? This is just 2005. But we put these seven initiatives together that were really critical. They focused on the environment, energy, education, transportation, technology, health and wellness, and storm safety. And we dug in deep on every single one of those. So if you look at Babcock, it's founded on those seven principles. And then we really said, okay, we're going to make it sustainable, we're going to make it resilient, and we're going to make it innovative. And that's what we've been working on, you know, from day one to make this happen. And just as an example, becoming the first solar-powered city in America, that was part of that eight-year process. That's how long it took to make that a reality. Now, of course, they're building, you know, these larger solar arrays all over the state, but back then, we were the first. And uh, they had a smaller one, but we, had, we started with 75 megawatts, now we're 150 megawatts. And just to put that in perspective, it's about 700,000 panels on about 840 acres powering this town. And we were one of the first solar-to-battery facilities at Babcock. They've been doing it some other places, but we're one of the first, and they've been using that to kind of figure out how can we do this on a bigger scale. We're working on that with them right now also. But resiliency, if you don't do it, right from the beginning, it's really difficult to come back and, and try and retrofit something that's so difficult to get right from the beginning. How much more expensive is it to build something this way rather than your standard development in the state of Florida? That's a great question. I've been asked that quite a bit. So here's the way I, I can answer it. Yes, it costs more money and it costs millions of dollars more than it would if I just did it sort of the standard way. One of the things you got to recognize when you drive through Babcock Ranch is all the wetlands. We preserved all the wetlands, so it looks different. When you drive through here, all these open areas and conservation areas, it just feels different. And by the way, they store a lot of water, but we preserve those. So when I get asked about the money part, you just look back and say, okay, what would it have cost from that storm? So the payback was very, very significant. Since Hurricane Ian, people are thinking more about resiliency because they have to, whether they've been personally affected by a storm or not. So what sort of interest have you seen in Babcock Ranch since Hurricane Ian, like what you've done here in our community? It's really interesting. So there have been two, two types of phone calls I've been receiving from all over the country, really, and, and from outside the country. And it's one, are those people who are planning new communities, and they really wanted to dig into more of the details to how we did it. 
And that's been very rewarding. And I tell them, look, take the playbook, and not only is it great that you're going to copy it, but do better. Improve on it. See if you can even be more, more innovative. And that's the greatest compliment uh, you can possibly get. The other questions that I get are from existing cities and towns that have these issues. It's a much more complicated because they have the legacy infrastructure that they're dealing with. But what I tell them is, is if you can get the political will to not think short-term, but think long-term, you got to plant some seeds right now. That's like, for example, hardening the infrastructure. What's hard for people to hear is, is if you're in a flood zone, you either got to raise the house up or you got to get rid of it. You got to do something. You can't just rebuild it the way it was because guess what? It's going to flood again. And this rinse and repeat of the same mistake just makes no sense at all. So you have to do one or the other. You either have to build the house more resiliently, the structure more resiliently, the office, but whatever it is, and or commit to the fact that you're not going to build there. But that's not always going to be the most realistic or even possible from a cost perspective, say, coastal no communities. I mean, right. obviously people are already doing this in mm -hmm. South Florida. They're raising roadways because of sure. sunny day flooding and things. But, I mean, there's got to be a limit, right? Like there are some things you do here that you couldn't replicate in a coastal community. True, but not true. If you start now, if you're thinking 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you start to do these things that you know eventually are going to, because climate change isn't going away, it's happening. This isn't about politics. This is just pure science. You're seeing it down in Miami. You're seeing it all over the state, what's, what's happening. If you start now, your grandkids and your great-grandkids are going to be so thankful that you had, we had the vision to start to get it right and start somewhere. The worst thing you can do is nothing, so you need to do something. And you get a chip away because it's going to cost a lot of money to get it right. I want to come back to the environmental part of this because I know that a lot of work went into making sure that this was done in a way that that was sustainable and, as you say, kind of environmentally sensitive and the kind of carve out of that big patch of land which went back to the state government to act as part of that corridor. But not every environmental advocate is going to be happy with it. Some say that even any kind of development in a place like this is going to constrict the patch of land that, say, a Florida panther may have to roam. It could raise the risk of other developers looking at other pieces of land saying, we could do the same sort of thing, but maybe not putting the same amount of forethought into the preservation side of things. So what do you say to, to folks who still have concerns about any kind of development going into something that was previously farmland and undeveloped land? Well, there are a thousand people a day moving into Florida, net. When you think about developments, I don't care where they are or what they are, they have impacts. They create impacts, and we must mitigate those impacts. That's our responsibility from the private sector. So what I tell you is, is that it needs to be done. We need to build homes, so let's do it the right way. And for us, as in, you use the panther as an example, well, we have a 17,000-acre panther mitigation area that we built and created, and it worked. They actually have, have a picture of a panther with their cubs, the first female panther north of the Caloosahatchee, I think in over 40 years. Carl Ward actually has a picture of that and a film of it. And so it's working. Our goal from day one has been to prove that a new town and the environment can work hand in hand. That is our mission. Because if you can't, then there's no hope. I mean, people come down here to Florida because of the natural resources, the beaches, the water, the great landscapes. We have to preserve those. 
but people are going to come here and live, so we need to do it the right way. But not everybody has the time or the, the capital to do a project like this, though. So do you worry about other developers eyeing up pieces of land or, you know, ranchers saying, we just can't afford to do this anymore, we've got to sell up and get out, and not everybody's going to have the vision to put in place some of the environmental practices that you have? I do worry about that. I think that's something we all need to be thinking about. But here's what can turn that tide, and that is the consumer. If people move to those places, and they are, that are thinking about sustainability and understand that we do have issues and we need to be very thoughtful about how we treat the environment. If people buy homes in those types of communities, then they're going to be built. And so the consumer itself can actually start to drive the demand for these types of communities. You talked about the big number of people moving here and they all need somewhere to live. But this must be a kind of an interesting time to be a developer in Florida because we have an insurance market that's in big trouble. Does that keep you up at night? It does. And it looks like we're moving forward and finding some solutions. I also will tell you that we're working with insurance companies right now and saying, look, we're proving that if we invest these additional dollars to be resilient, why can't you reward those people that do that, whether it be builders or where you build, how you build, shouldn't you reward people for doing it right? And I do believe that we're making progress to solve it. So it's just not a political solution. I think it's the private sector has to take responsibility also. And it's going to take time, by the way. I don't think there's any quick solve to that. But if you do build in a resilient way, I do believe that these rates should start to come down. So what is the future of Babcock Ranch there's obviously some building to go, and I understand that at some point the town will become incorporated, mm -hmm. so there'll be some kind of local politics to get involved. How do you see that shaping up? I would say two things. One is we want to continue to push innovation and how builders build here at Babcock Ranch. I think the biggest innovation in the last 50 years has been the uh, nail gun. There just hasn't been a lot of changes, but that's it. I mean, you know, but you now have 3D printed homes, homes that are built robotically with computers, and you know, there's a lot of innovation out there that we would like to bring to Babcock Ranch. On the second, your second part of that question, which is really, really interesting, and that is, you know, what form of government can we put in a Babcock Ranch? And we're exploring that right now. How can we have a place governed in a way that isn't siloed, where the true mission of what Babcock Ranch is all about is sustained through the years? This place is going to be here for hopefully hundreds of years. How do we make sure that the spirit of Babcock Ranch lasts through the political changes that all occur for sure over, the, over that period of time? Would you run for mayor if, if that was a position up for grabs? <laughs> no, I'm not a very good politician. I'm just going to continue to hopefully build great places. You have two counties to work with. Yeah. Hopefully they're both always going to be on the same page, but is that something that you kind of worry about? They have not always been on the same page, so we've already been down that road. Look, I think that Babcock Ranch, it's identified as one place. It's not identified as Charlotte County and Lee County. It's identified as Babcock Ranch. People don't come here and go, gee, I want to live in Lee County, or I want to live in Charlotte County. They want to live in Babcock Ranch. So I think that that line, that divide, is sort of erased. The issue really becomes politically getting approvals in both of these counties. And right now, we have good partnerships in both counties. And part of that, too, is because 
If you do what you say you're going to do, it's amazing how people will react to that. If you don't, then you're going to have a very difficult time. But all along, we've always said, look, don't listen so much to what we say, but see what we do. And that has really, I think, built a lot of goodwill. Well, Sid, thank you so much for your time. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. That's our show for this week. Find us on social media. Look for Florida Matters. Find archived episodes and download the podcast from WUSF.org wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Steve Newborn. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>